Okay, so before we begin the topic, I just want to make a brief comment about the month that we're in. You know, alhamdulillah, everyone has agreed as of last night that we've now entered the month of Rabi' al-Awwal, uh, the first spring, first spring. And the month of Rabi' al-Awwal is the month of the birth of Al-Habib al-Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, our Prophet. It's the, it's the month of his birthday. And uh, historically, you know, around Muslim majority lands, the month of Rabi' al-Awwal is generally a month of great celebration. So usually there's certain kinds of sweets that are made for Rabi' al-Awwal. People will put up things and decorate their homes and the streets and there'll be all types of gatherings. In Egypt, for, for, for sure, I can say that Rabi' al-Awwal is a time of Great celebration in Egypt. People are very happy. Special treats, you know, the special kak, like cake that's made for Rabi' al-Awwal. And then usually also uh, the ulama, the scholars of Al-Azhar, will generally be doing all kinds of lessons about the life of the Prophet them all over the place. So all of the mosques and all of the major institutions will be holding lessons about the life of the Prophet them. And so, uh, my reminder to everyone is that we should try to, uh, this month should be special to us, should be special to us. Whether or not people celebrate quote-unquote the mawlid and what that means and all of that stuff, it's actually borderline irrelevant to me. And, um, but what's important, which is not disputable, is that we should feel a level of joy in our hearts when it comes to the idea of the coming of the Prophet send them into the physical world. And uh, you know, how and, and what kind of celebration happens regarding the Mawlid, that's a, uh, scholars have differed on it. Most are okay with it, but the scholars have differed on it. Whatever position someone wants to take, that's fine. But you should still learn something about the Prophet them. should still uh, venerate the month and so on. So what I would encourage people to do is to try to do something special in this month. Whether that means that you choose some book of hadith and you read it from beginning to end, choose some book of the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and read it from beginning to end. Uh, even if you want to choose a portion of the Qur'an and read that portion of the Qur'an, you know, the Qur'an, who brought the Qur'an to us? It's the Prophet them. So any act of worship, you could do an act of service, because the Prophet them was... Uh, a mercy to all of the worlds So we could do some sort of active service But we should make a specific intention That we're going to do something special in this month To recognize uh, the birth of the Prophet If you're really stuck and you want something easy You can go to the Majlis website the Themajlis.us and look in the blog under the publications And you'll find this document that I did in Rabi' al-Awwal 
two years ago uh, called 40 Hadith from the Shama'il of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam So there are 40 Hadith uh, describing the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam And uh, before we start the regular lesson I would like to read just uh, one, maybe two Who knows, we might end up in three or four um, Descriptions of the Prophet, peace be upon him That I think are really good for us to be aware of you know, I've, it's, I've, it, I've had many times in class this idea of the Prophet ﷺ will come up in the school and then students will say things like, well, we can't draw the Prophet ﷺ, so we don't know what he looked like. And that is extremely false. We actually know with uh, great detail what he looked like, ﷺ. Uh, of course, this is the world of images that we live in now, right? If you, if you were to rewind like a hundred years before there were image boxes, <laughs> you know, like the TV is the first image box, really, and the photograph and all of these. Before that, people really, like these descriptions we have of the Prophet Wasallam, it was known that in his time there were certain people, everyone would, would have been good at this, because they're not distracted by images, right? So they would have been able to look at people and recognize things in them, and remember things about them, about their physical uh, description. And on top of that, there are people in the time of the Prophet ﷺ who were exceptionally known for that. So-and-so was skilled, they kind of was softened. They were skilled in being able to describe people. So they would see someone once, and they remember everything about them. They were generally this height, they had this thing, this eyebrows were this much apart from each other, the eyes looked like this, the ears were like that, the build was like this. They, they could remember everything about the person. And of course this would be very useful in a society like theirs, right? Because you don't know what someone looks like until you see them. Right? Imagine that. Yeah, that's why we have those descriptions in the, the Hajj, the farewell pilgrimage of the Prophet where one of, the, one of the men who was in the pilgrimage, his son was with him. And, uh, and he pointed to, he said, do you see that man over there? And his son said, yes. And he said, that Rasulullah You can imagine it, like, he tells him, that's the messenger of Allah. Like, his son wouldn't know. There's a hundred thousand people. You don't know who's who. So he says, this is the messenger of Allah. So we have these descriptions. Uh, we have physical descriptions. We have character descriptions that are in great detail. And I think it's good to... Um, they say, actually, there is one opinion amongst the scholars. You probably know this idea that whoever sees the Prophet in a dream, then they've seen him. Because the shaitan doesn't take his form. Any, thank you. Anything else that happens in a dream, we can't be sure about it. Right? We have to be careful about this. Anything else that happens in a dream, we can't really be sure about it. Sometimes we can. I mean, as a general rule, it's hard to be sure about it. But if you see the Prophet ﷺ in a dream, then you know it's the Prophet Okay? One opinion amongst the scholars is that's only possible for the person who studied his description. Right? Because if I haven't studied the description of the Prophet ﷺ, how do I even know that it's him in the first place? Just because I felt like it was him? How do I know? Right? So I have to actually know the description of the Prophet ﷺ uh, in order to do that. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. So let's listen to a couple of descriptions. Hassan ibn Ali radiallahu anhumah reported, I asked my maternal uncle, Hind ibn Abi Halim, Hassan is saying, I asked my maternal uncle. 
His maternal uncle would be on the side of Fatima. Fatima's mother is Khadija. I think Hind ibn Abi Hana is the son of Khadija before she married the Prophet. Does anyone know off the top of there? Pretty sure he is, but. Uh, which would give you a little bit of idea too because that means that he grew up with the Prophet so he's seen him a lot he knows exactly anyways he says I asked my maternal uncle Hind ibn Abi Hana who was skilled in describing features about the beautiful description of the Messenger of God I desired for him to describe some of his features to me so I could hold tight to them look at this statement of Hassan Hassan is who? you're following it? Hassan ibn Ali is who? The grandson of the Prophet right? The grandson of the Prophet is going and asking this to his uncle so that I can hold tight to them. He said, The Messenger of God was magnificent in himself and was magnificent in the eyes of others. His face shone like the light of the full moon on a moonlit night. He was taller than a man of average height, yet shorter than an extremely tall man. His head was large and his hair was wavy. If the hair on the front of his blessed head parted easily, he would part it. And if it did not, he would leave it as it was. When he would leave his blessed hair, it would fall past his earlobes. His complexion was fair and luminous. His forehead was wide. His eyebrows were arched, thin, long, and full, perfectly shaped without connecting. Between them was a vein that anger would cause to pulsate. His nose was prominent, long, with a thin tip and a slight curvature in the middle. It was aquiline. A light rose from it. One who did not look closely at him would think that it was raised high and straight with the tip of the nose slightly prominent. His beard was full and dense. His cheeks were smooth. His mouth was wide, and between his front teeth was a slight space. A thin line of hair ran from his chest to his navel. His neck was like that of an ivory statue, as resplendent as silver. His physique was evenly proportioned. He was well-built and firm, and his chest and stomach were even with each other. His chest and shoulders were broad, and his joints were proportionately large. His limbs that were unclothed shone brightly. Besides the thin line of hair that ran from his upper chest to his navel, neither his chest nor his stomach had hair. His arms, shoulders, and upper chest, however, had hair. He had long forearms and wide palms, and, and full-fleshed, sturdy hands and feet. His fingers and toes were long and well-proportioned, and he had a slight arch in the soles of his feet. His feet were smooth such that water could run off them. When he walked, he would lift his feet with vigor and would lean forward slightly and would tread lightly. He had a naturally long stride, and when walking, it was as if he was walking downhill. When he would turn, he would turn with his whole body. He would lower his gaze, looking at the ground more than the sky. Most of his looking was from the corner of his eye. He would have his companions walk in front of him, and would initiate greetings of peace with whomever he met. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Meaning he would, uh, like he wouldn't always look directly at things. He would kind of like notice them. There's other things you could think about here. Uh, it's a little bit of a tangent, but Perhaps it's, a, it's an important one. You know how we have this idea of the evil eye? The Prophet ﷺ would be the ultimate example of the opposite of that. 
Just like we have the evil eye, we have the opposite also. Like if uh, there's people who their look can make great changes in a person. And the Prophet Wasallam's look would be very powerful. If he's like angry at someone, if he's happy with someone. So he has to have some control over how he looks. That's how I would understand it. Uh, here's another description from Hind ibn Abi Halim, also narrated from Hassan ibn Ali. He said, I asked my maternal uncle Hind ibn Abi Halim, who was skilled in describing features, to describe for me the speech of the Messenger of God. He said, the Messenger of God was in a constant state of concern, always in deep thought. He had no rest. He would remain silent for long periods of time and would not speak without need. He would begin and end his speech by mentioning the name of God, most exalted. His speech was concise yet comprehensive. His words were distinguished, neither too much nor too few. He was neither coarse nor demeaning. He honored blessings, even if they were small, and he never found fault with any of them. Though he would never find fault with nor praise the taste of food or drink. The lower world did not anger him, nor did anything of its affairs. If the truth was transgressed against, nothing would quiet his anger until he had sought justice for it. He would never become angry for his own sake or seek to avenge himself. When he would point at something, he would point with his whole hand. When he was amazed by something, he would turn his hand over. He would gesture with his hand while speaking and strike the inside of his left thumb with his right palm. When he was angry, he would turn away. When he was delighted, he would lower his gaze. His laughter was mostly smiles. And when he would laugh, it was as though something like hailstones appeared. We can't stop there. There's some other good ones too. These are all on the website? These are all on the 40, yeah. These are the longer ones. I tried to... The original work of Imam Tirmidhi is over... Four, it's 410 hadith. So it's quite comprehensive. Uh, it's a little bit overwhelming for the average person. So the idea in the 40 that I chose was to try to choose 40 that really give a taste of who the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was. You know, so uh, they're a little bit, like this one is one of my favorite narrations, also from Hassan ibn Ali and Hind ibn Abi Halim. It's longer. He said, I asked my maternal uncle Hind ibn Abi Halim who was skilled in describing features about the beautiful description of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I desired for him to describe some of his features to me, so he said. Uh, it starts with the beginning of the other one. The Messenger of God was magnificent in himself and was magnificent in the eyes of others. His blessed face shone like the light of the full moon on a moonlit night. Then it trails <coughs> off. Hassan says, I concealed this from Hussein for some time. Who is Hussein? Hassan's brother, right? The other grandson of the Prophet So he says, I kept this from Hussein for a little while. <laughs> And uh, later when I narrated it to him, I found that he had beaten me to it. He had also asked Hind about the same things I asked about. On top of that, I discovered that he asked his father, their father, Ali, about the Prophet's character inside and outside his home, and about his features, and he did not omit a single detail. Hussein said, I asked my father about how the Messenger of God was when he would enter his home. He said, when he entered his home, he would divide his time into three portions, a portion for God, a portion for his family, and a portion for himself. Then he would take the portion that was for himself and divide it between himself and the people, giving it to the elect over the common folk. He would not keep anything from them. His conduct in the portion for his ummah was that he would give preference for the people of merit by his permission and would apportion his time among them according to their virtue in the religion. Some of them needed one thing, 
Others needed two things and others had many needs. He would occupy himself with their needs and keep them busy in things that would bring benefit to them and to the ummah. Some people might hear this and say, well, why is he giving preference to the elect over the common folk? This is his personal time in his house. This is not his public time. His public time, everyone has access to his public time. In his home, he can choose who, who needs a little bit more uh, for the greater benefit, actually, as we'll see in a second. He would respond to their needs and inform them of what they should do. He would say, let those present among you convey to those who are absent. Apprise me of the need of the one who is unable to apprise me himself. For whoever apprises the leader of the need of one who is unable to convey it, God will make his feet firm on the day of resurrection. This is an amazing hadith. This was all that was mentioned in his presence, and he would accept nothing but this from anyone. They would enter, this is my, one of my favorite descriptions, they would enter as seekers and only disperse after having tasted something, leaving as guides, meaning guides to goodness. He said, then I, Hussein, asked him, Ali, how the Messenger of Allah وسلم, was when he left his home and what he would do. He said, the Messenger of God would hold his blessed tongue from speaking about anything except what concerned him. He would bring the people together and would not cause them to scatter. He would honor the nobles of every folk and appoint them over their people. He was cautious of people and on guard with them, though without denying any of them his cheerful countenance and good character. He would inquire about his companions when they were not around and ask the elect about the general welfare of others. He would praise what is beautiful and strengthen it and would condemn what is ugly and weaken it. His was the balanced course. He never swerved from one extreme to another. He was never remiss, fearing that others might become remiss or wary. He was prepared for every possibility. He neither neglected a right, nor did he exceed it. Those who were close to him were the choicest of the people, and the most virtuous of them in his sight were those whose sincere counsel was most generally beneficial. The most esteemed of them in station were those most beneficent and helpful to others. Of course, every one of these things could be like, uh, there's so much that could be said, right? So beautiful. He said, then I, Hussein, asked him, Ali, about the gatherings of the Messenger of God, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, his majlis. He said, the Messenger of God, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, would neither, neither rise nor sit, except that he would remember God. When he would go to sit with a people, he would take his seat wherever space remained in the gathering, and he would tell others to do the same. He would give everyone sitting with him an ample share of himself. The one sitting with him would think that there is no one more honorable in his sight than him. Whenever a person would sit with him or come to him for help, he would patiently assist him until the person would leave. Whenever a person would petition him for a need, he would not leave him empty-handed. He would either give him his need or give him a goodly word. His cheerful, smiling countenance and character encompassed people such that he became like a father unto them, and they all became equal in his blessed eyes when it came to the fulfillment of rights. His gatherings were gatherings of forbearance and shyness, patience and trust. Voices were not raised, sanctities were not violated, and odious behavior was not displayed. They were equal and only superior to one another based on God consciousness. They were humble. In his gatherings they would show respect to elders, have mercy upon the young, give preference to those in need, and look after the strangers. That last piece is so beautiful. They were humble. In his gatherings they would show respect to elders, have mercy upon the young, give preference to those in need, and look after the strangers. <laughs> a 
last one. I think this is the last big one. Hassan ibn Ali reported, Hussein said, I asked my father about the conduct of the Prophet towards those in his gatherings. He said, The Prophet always had a cheerful countenance. He had an easygoing character and an easygoing disposition. He was neither harsh nor coarse nor obnoxious nor lewd in behavior, nor was he a fault finder nor unyielding. He would overlook things he disliked and would not cause others who despised, desired them to despair of them. He would simply avoid partaking of them. Do you see this description? That is a remarkable description. Let me read it again. He would overlook things he disliked and would not cause others who desired them to despair of them. He would simply avoid partaking of them. He forsook three things for himself, disputation, excessiveness, and matters that did not concern him. He forsook three things with respect to people who would not, he would not disgrace anyone, he would not find fault with anyone, and he would not pry into the private affairs of others. He would not speak except regarding things for which he hoped reward. And when he would speak, those sitting in his company would lower their heads and be so still, it was as if birds were perched upon their heads. Maybe that's why they do it. Only after he would stop talking would they speak. They would not dispute with one another when they would speak in his presence. They would listen attentively to anyone who spoke in his presence until that person was finished. Their conversation with the Prophet would be based on the first of them to come and speak. He would laugh at what they would laugh at and would express amazement at what they expressed amazement at. He would be patient with the crude speech and request of strangers. So his companions would bring them to the Prophet Isn't that interesting? He would say, if you see a person seeking fulfillment of a need, then help him. He would not accept praise except from one who was responding to a favor given. He would not interrupt a person while he was speaking unless the person went too far. In that case, he would stop him by either prohibiting the person or getting up to leave. Say that again. Mm-hmm. Stop them from saying whatever they're saying. So like maybe they start saying something that they really shouldn't be saying. He would either stop them, them, or he would get up and leave. If you want to read more, you can go to the text, inshallah. I believe there's a, a class that I did on that on the Majlis web uh, YouTube page also. If you want to listen to it with commentary. Uh, you can check that out. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. In Fatih, in Ma'ulik, in Khatim, in Masabak, in Asr, in Haqib, in Haqib, in Hadi, in Asratik, in Mustaqim, in Ali, in Haqq, in Qadri, in Miqdari, in Azim. You know, uh, love of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the centrality of the love of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is the great unifying factor of all of the Muslims. With all of the variations and all of the differences in culture and everything else, it all goes back to an Habib sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Bismillah. So we'll go to Futuwa now. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Qal al-Musannifu hafidhahullahu ta'ala wa nafa'anallahu yahu bi'ulumi fiddarin. Ameen. Number four, treat others as you want them to treat you or even better.
Treat others as you want them to treat you or even better. Wabisa ibn Ma'ban he said, I went to the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he asked me, Have you come to inquire about piety? I replied in the affirmative. You saw what happened, right? This person came to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the Prophet told him what he was coming to ask about. <laughs> so he said, You came to ask about Bir? Came to ask about piety? He said, Yeah, that's what I came for. The Prophet said, ask your heart regarding it. Piety is that which contents the soul and comforts the heart. And sin is that which causes doubts and perturbs the heart. Even if people pronounce it lawful and give you verdicts on such matters again and again. Uh, this is a very interesting hadith, of course. Uh, very commonly misused, actually. You know, because this is the famous hadith of istafti qalbak. You know, ask your heart. And uh, there's a middle ground here, you know. Uh, in order to ask our hearts, we have to have some sort of relationship with our hearts. Okay? So if I've never asked my heart anything, and if I don't pay attention to my heart at all, and I don't have this kind of like, I think they call it something in English, uh, some sort of like meta-consciousness, you know, like you're able to think about the way that you think or think about the way that you feel and stuff like that, then I can't really ask my heart, right? <laughs> because I don't, I don't even understand the language of my heart in the first place. We didn't get to know each other yet. Once, but if we attend to our hearts <clears throat> and we start to really recognize things, I go, I'm feeling this way today, I'm feeling that way today, I'm feeling this way about that, I'm feeling that way about that. And the first step will be to recognize that, how I'm feeling about it, right? And then the next step would be to try to understand what the motivator is for that feeling. Because a lot of times what's happening is that there's other things getting in the way of the heart. The heart is straight nur, or the heart is just light. But everything else is darkness that gets in the way. So you might have darkness that's like <coughs> the darkness of jealousy or the darkness of... Um, trauma or the darkness of just like not wanting good for people and darkness of not thinking well of ourselves, not thinking well of others. many darknesses that can come into the heart they all corrupt the image that we see they're like spots on the mirror you know, or dents in the mirror it'll change the perception of what we're seeing <clears throat> but if, if there's a relationship there then sometimes we can understand it if there's a relationship there we might, our heart might tell us something negative and we might say, you know what? I don't trust you on this one. Because there's something else going on here. <laughs> you know? Or another time we might hear it and we might say, you know what? You're telling me something right now. And some of our teachers, they would tell us that you can actually talk to your heart. But sometimes it starts to get a little bit out of control and you can tell it, just be quiet. <laughs> Calm down, be quiet. Is, you know? And we can have that relationship, subhanAllah. Uh, there's some righteous people who said that They said uh, One of them he said I stood on the gates of my heart for 40 years And I didn't let anything enter Except that I wanted it to enter well, like he, Imagine this Like they actually I stood on that gate Nothing came in Anything bad it didn't come I Told it you're not welcome here Anything good it can come You're welcome And he gave life to his heart like this So if we have this kind of relationship with our heart Then we can ask Right? And this is really important Because look at the, the text of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam 
is saying that you ask your heart because goodness, it settles in the heart and it feels okay. And bad things, when they come in the heart, they disturb it. And he says, so you can ask your heart and pay attention to that, even if all kinds of people are giving you fatwa that it's acceptable. This is the actual statement. Or something like this. Basically, like, even if all kinds of people are giving you official position. We spent so much time on this in the last class, right? This idea of the fatwa. Someone's giving you a position on it, and you just don't feel right about it. You know? They're telling you this is what Islam says, this is what Islam is, this is what you're supposed to do, this, and you just, it just doesn't feel right. You know? Then we should probably pay attention to that. Um, actually, I think it's probably fair to say, that in, in light of our current circumstances and the reality of these issues, we should probably almost always trust that. On this particular thing If someone's telling you that it's a matter of religion And so on And you just don't feel good about it You should probably explore it a little bit Ask someone else Talk to someone else Get some more detail Get some more perspective And uh, It's very rare You know That we're dealing with people In the realm of seeking religious advice It's very rare that we're dealing with people Who can legitimately give us a comprehensive perspective It's just the reality of it Because like our tradition is really vast and the, the details of it and the, the applications of it and stuff like that uh, can differ from person to person, you know? So uh, if it's something that's really upsetting us, we should probably seek more clarification on it. Anyways, he continues, he says, treat people the way you want them to treat you is a universal moral rule. Futuwa takes this rule a step further and advises us to treat others not only as we want them to treat us, but better. It thus goes further than reciprocity. Actually, if you think about the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, that no one truly believes until they love for someone else what they love for themselves, this is a step further than treat others as you would like to be treated. Right? It's not just how I would want to be treated, but it's you know, what would I love for myself. And then I have to love that for them. Because actually, subhanAllah, it's important for us to remember that the matters of the heart come before the matters of the limbs. So treat others as you would like to be treated is a matter usually of the limbs. It's an external thing. But love for others what you love for yourself is a matter of the heart. It takes it a step further. Uh, and a little bit deeper. Not to like... Uh, it, just, it just gives us something else to think about. We all want to be treated well. When someone treats us well, we feel happy. And when we are not, we feel sad. This feeling of happiness or sadness suffices to judge whether an action is right or wrong. You know, uh, you might not feel good about it. Again, uh, we're assuming some level of uh, like um, stability here. Right? Some some level of emotional, spiritual maturity and stability. Uh, I always tell people this whole issue of like ask your heart and things might offend you or they don't offend you or causes you happiness or doesn't cause you happiness. Like before, there's a lot of things that if I asked my heart about them before I was a Muslim, my heart would have told me to do them and they were just bad, right? <laughs> so there is some guidance that's necessary in this thing, right? It's not just like a free-for-all. Um, there's a lot of things up to today probably that someone might do to me and initially I might not like it. But 
with some time and like once my ego gets out of the way, I might feel like, you know what, actually there was uh, something good in that. And I'm not talking about oppression here. I'm just talking about sometimes, for example, sometimes someone might tell us something really directly and it doesn't sit well. But afterwards we realize, wait, that was actually true, you know. Um, I was thinking about something like this a day or two ago, but it's, it's, uh, uh, it's not coming to my mind right now. But I'm sure people can think of cases like that. The rule is very simple. If you feel happy when something is done to you, do the same to others. Likewise, when something done to you makes you sad, do not do it to others. <coughs> that could be true even if it's something that's right. You know? Someone could do something that's, tell us something that's true. It makes us sad. Maybe we shouldn't do it the same way with someone else. Even if it's true. Even if there is nothing technically wrong with it. But maybe there's a way to do it more tactfully. Maybe there's a way to do it more politely. So on and so forth. Um, as we said before, when it comes to giving people advice and talking to people about things and stuff like that, sometimes we have to do it. <coughs> but the nature of the human being is that generally if someone pushes us on something, we don't feel the same about them afterwards. <laughs> at least initially. Over time, it might go away, you know? But at least for a little while, there's going to be like, the relationship is not going to be the same. Sometimes the benefit is still greater and we need to do it. But uh, we should just always keep that in mind. Imam Ghazani talks about that. According to this approach, empathy and sympathy are used as criteria to know what is right and what is wrong, provided that it is religiously permissible. So I was talking about in the realm of what's permissible, how we feel about things is an indicator of which route to take. This is a very interesting thing that he's doing. One uses sympathy as a criterion for his personal feelings and uses empathy to understand others' feelings by putting himself in their shoes. It is possible to know, or at least to guess, the effects of certain actions or behaviors through sympathy and empathy. In addition, if one faces a situation in which he is not able to distinguish right from wrong, he could simply use his own feelings or others' feelings to decide how to act in that particular situation. This approach is used in different moral teachings included in Futuwa. So if we're not sure how exactly to go about a situation, we can think about how we would feel if we were approached in different ways, and we can think about how the other person might feel if we approach them, right? And then we use that as kind of a guide in, guideline to help us decide what it is that we're gonna do. And, uh, and again, this is in the realm of what's acceptable. <coughs> Such an approach also provides guidance on how to apply moral rules to private and subjective situations. As we can see in the hadith, the satisfaction or discomfort that a person experiences in the face of a behavior is a subjective state. The purpose of moral behavior is to make both parties feel happy in mutual relations. This is where the difference between law and morality emerges. Law is based on justice, whereas morality is based on love. Law aims at achieving justice without taking the subjective feelings of the parties involved into consideration. In morality, a cause is, uh, print out is not so great. A casuistic approach is adopted. This approach gives importance to subjectivity instead of objective rules and changes from one situation to another. So, the idea that he's getting at here is that, and we've talked about this also before. Like, there's a difference between fatwa and taqwa. There's a difference between adl and ihsan. There's a difference between the base bottom of like what's just and sometimes we have to do that and sometimes we have to, sometimes we take other angles on it and this is actually where a lot of our community dramas and stuff get really mixed up okay why 
because ideally you have different roles okay ideally in a well-developed Muslim community you have people who are playing the role of the Qadi you have people that are playing the role of the judge you have people that are playing the role of the Mufti the one who gives independent legal, legal positions you have people who are playing the role of the Murabbi the one who's trying to educate people and raise their level and give them spiritual training and stuff like this and they're not always the same position okay? but what happens when you have one religious leader is that they're playing all of the roles at the same time so for them and for others things get really confused because if they're talking to say for example you have someone who did something wrong and they need to be held accountable for that thing that they did wrong and you take that to the religious teacher and that religious teacher is now dealing with the situation are they dealing with the situation from the from the position of the judge or are they dealing with the situation from the position of a spiritual teacher and guide because it's going to be different you know and how are we looking at that? Because I've seen this happen actually. And I myself sometimes have had this happen to me before. You know, like we have some teachers, if the person's not insane, they'll more or less take them as a student. That's their only, uh, I'm being serious. Like their only hesitation would be that if a person has like really serious mental health issues that make it so that it's very difficult for them to understand reality in a way that is anywhere close to reality this is the case where they would be like I don't know if I can take this person as a student because the relationship just won't work you know but if a person they might have people as their students who are like very corrupt people but imagine you have someone who comes to you you're, you're the spiritual teacher right and you have someone who comes to you and you know that they're not really a good person but they're coming to you and they're saying Sheikh I want to be better and I want to take your guidance. What is the Shaykh going to say? He'll say, Anu Sahna. Say, Welcome, Bismillah. You know, do this and this and this. And someone from the outside might look at it and be like, Oh my God, why does the Shaykh have this person as their student? Because the Shaykh is looking at it from the perspective of, How can I help this person to become better? They're not looking at it from the perspective of the judge. And if you bring them in to make them the judge, know that you've entered now into a different situation. You know, you can't, uh, you've put them in a difficult situation and, and everyone now is in a different situation. But someone has to play that role, okay? So I'm not saying that it shouldn't be done, but I'm just saying that someone has to play that role. So the law is going to be based on justice, but the morality might be based on love, right? So if, if you involve the, uh, and of course we don't have any systems, so the whole thing's broken anyways, because we're not living under a system. You know, in an, Islamic, in an Islamic system, you could take cases to a judge that you wouldn't be able to take to a judge here. You know, they'd be matters of honor, they'd be matters of sharia, but maybe they're not matters of Western law, you know, stuff like that. You could take it to the judge. And the judge has the ability to implement a certain rule. The judge has the resources to have people do research for them, to have people investigate for them. The judge also has the... Um, the physical power of the state that can protect them from being harmed by the people that are bringing the case to them. There's a whole lot of issues involved in these things. You know, people don't always think about them. They don't think them through necessarily. You know, we just take it to the imam. Okay, but now you, like, you understand. You brought this case to the imam, and most likely, out of their feeling of taqwa in front of Allah, they'll try to deal with it. But you may be bringing them a case that puts them in like physical harm. Like in the threat of physical harm. They're now they're, you know, people will do their best. 
but we should think before we do things, you know. And uh, what did I expose them to? Is it something they can even help with in the first place? And we might be frustrated sometimes because we don't have answers to a lot of things, you know. So we should let that frustration motivate us to try to find solutions, inshallah. Anyways, the point is, justice is one thing and love is another thing, you know. Sometimes even like in, in our personal, you might have a case that comes to you, right? Maybe it involves like a husband and a wife. And you talk to the husband, you might talk to them a particular way one-on-one. And you talk to the wife, you might talk to them a particular way one-on-one. Because now you're not dealing with as much, uh, you're, I'm, I'm worried more about the person that's in front of me than the group's question. And you bring them together in the same gathering, now it's a different conversation. Everyone should understand this. Now, now we're having a different You put me in This is now a different role Than the role of one-on-one The role of solving the situation is different now uh, So all of these are just things to, to think about you know. uh, In this approach based on empathy The scholars such as Imam Ghazali Recommend as a way of moral education He said Do to others what you would like to be done to you And do not do to others What you do not like to be done to you this would be, again, on the moral side. So that was principle number four. Do unto others what you would like to be done to you, and even more. Of course, this also requires us to have some knowledge of ourselves. Uh, a lot of times, uh, there's, there's a beautiful quote that I read a couple days ago. It says something along the lines of, like being aware of ourselves enough to not see the ugliness that's inside of ourselves and others. <laughs> you catch it? Uh, being aware of ourselves enough that we don't see the ugliness that's inside of ourselves and others. Uh, there's this beautiful line. Uh, there's a show. Probably some of you guys have. Have you guys seen the show Yunus Emery? It's a Turkish uh, series. Anyone seen it? It's a good one. You should watch it. Uh, Yunus Emre. It was on Netflix for a while. I don't know if it still is. Uh, I feel like the Netflix translation was better than the one that's on the Turkish channel now because of this scene. This scene actually was translated differently on the Turkish YouTube channel than it was translated on the Netflix one. I don't know which one's true in Turkish, but the first way that I heard it was really powerful. You know, he's like the Sheikh is there, he's traveling and he meets the Qadi. You get, again, it, it shows that relationship, the judge and the, the Sheikh. The judge is very like apparent, right? And he says something to uh, the sheikh. He doesn't know he's a sheikh at that time. The sheikh tells him, he said, the heart that has disbelief in it only sees disbelief. Because the judge was telling him like, this thing that you said, you know, it's kind of a problematic state. Is this a kufr thing that you're saying? Is it a statement of disbelief or not? And the sheikh tells him the heart that's, that has disbelief in it only sees disbelief. Uh, it's like a very true thing. You know, the heart that's really struggling with jealousy All they see from other people is jealousy That's all they see Every interaction is interpreted in, in the lens of jealousy The heart that's really struggling with not thinking well of others Then they see every interaction with other people as them not thinking well of them They start to see these things in all of it So whatever is in the heart will show up So we, yeah They're projecting. They're projecting, yeah. Good question. They're projecting that. It's not even there. You know? 
Um, believe that. Number five. Love for your friends that which you love for yourself. So this is now a step further. Love for your friends that which you love for yourself. It is narrated that a surri met a nobleman and greeted him cold-heartedly. Seeing this, the people told him with surprise, This person is a noble man. He said, I know. But I heard that the Prophet ﷺ said, If two Muslims meet each other, a hundred parts of mercy are shared between them, and ninety of them are reserved for the most cheerful of them. So I wanted the noble man to get the most of the mercy. <laughs> you get it? It's like, I'm not telling you to do this. When we were in college sometimes, we would hit each other, you know? Brothers, we would see each other. We hit each other. And then we'd congratulate the other person that some of their sins were gone. <laughs> you know? Because not, not a single thorn pricks the believer except that some of their sins are forgiven. So we'd help each other out, you know? <laughs> I'm not telling you to do that, but he's saying that this, this is why he greeted him coldly. Love for others that which you love for yourself, and do not love for others that which you do not love for yourself, is a universal moral rule. If one applies this rule in his life, he will have good morality, even if he has not received any moral training. It's interesting. So there is a benefit, of course, to moral training. When someone is taken step by step, they figure out, okay, this is the thing you should do, this is the thing that you don't do, they work through it, they grow, so on and so forth. But there's certain principles that if we just take them and we apply them, they'll suffice us from a lot of training. Right? So he's saying that if we have this idea of love for others what we love for ourselves and do not love for them what we do not love for ourselves, then this will benefit even if we don't have moral training. It will, it will carry the day. That's why we always say that with all of the things that we learn and all the things that we teach and inshallah they refine us in our perspective and they give us reminders and everything else. But if it all boiled down to anything, it all boils down to love people and serve people. Just love people and serve people. If you keep that in the front, everything else will fall into place. By wanting for others that which one wants for oneself, one eliminates the feeling of jealousy from the heart. Jealousy is a blameworthy quality whereby a person wishes for the deprivation of a blessing or merit possessed by another person and desires to have that blessing or merit exclusively to oneself. People of Futuwa cannot be jealous because they love for others what they love for themselves. So jealousy is a very uh, serious one. And hasad. And hasad, it eats the good deeds the way that fire eats wood. That's what they always say. The way that, the way that fire eats wood, jealousy eats good deeds. So a person could do a lot of good, but they have this jealousy in their heart, and it eats away at everything. Slowly eats away at it, eats away at it. Uh, and we should be careful because it's actually, um, of course, there's levels to everything. You know, there's like jealousy that's really apparent. It's really clear. We might feel like, alhamdulillah, I've kind of like worked through that for the most part. It'll rear its head from time to time. But for the most part, I'm not dealing with that. We should just know that that doesn't mean that we're free from jealousy. And that sometimes it's very uh, subtle. And sometimes it's very hidden. And uh, again, only if we're truly attentive to our hearts can we begin to realize like, ah, oh, that feeling that I have here, it's not 100% clean. There's a little bit of jealousy that's motivating this, you know, and that can sneak up a lot. Since the most precious blessings for a Muslim are ma'rifatullah and iman, the people of Futuwa want all people to know Allah and to have the blessing of iman. 
They want all people to be happy in this world and in the hereafter. Our beloved Prophet ﷺ said, None among you truly believes until he loves for his brother that which he loves for himself. In this hadith, a connection has been established between true belief and moving away from an egocentric understanding of life. Selfish people consider themselves superior to others and want other people to, de- to be deprived of Allah's blessings. Those people have not attained true iman. A person who truly believes in Allah is one who wants other people to be happy in this life, to worship Allah, and to go to paradise. This is the way of Futuwa. <coughs> uh, there's really simple things that we can do, actually, that will help us in this. I'll give you an example. The position of many of the madhabs, at least the Hanafi school and the Hanbali school, I can say off the top of my head, is that when someone, someone can do a good deed and intend the reward for someone who's passed away, right? Despite whatever you may have heard uh, in community settings, this is the position of the majority of scholars and, and the four madhabs actually, that you can read Quran and you can intend the reward to go uh, to someone who's passed away. For sure, I can say in the Hanafi school and the Hanbali school, that extends also to those who are living. So you could do that for someone who's alive too. So I could read Surah Al-Fatiha and intend the reward to go to, I don't know, you know, uh, Sayyidina Omar, Sayyidina Abu Bakr, to the Sahaba, to any number of righteous people throughout history, to my ancestors, to whatever it might be. We can read Surah Al-Fatiha and tend the reward for them. Okay? And we can do that for people who are alive too. And uh, sometimes it's a very simple just change of heart. You know? Uh, one time I asked one of my teachers, I was saying like basically, we have these people in community life and they look to us for different things and they want things from us and they, you know, they ask for dua and things like that. Like, can we... Uh, can we make like any dhikr that we make during the day or something like that? Can we intend for them to have the reward from that too or benefit from that? The Shaykh very plainly, he was like, yeah, yeah, you could do that. And you can do that for the entire ummah also. He's like, that's what I do. <laughs> and that was, the com- that was the end of the conversation. It moved. <laughs> and I was like, wow. <laughs> he just like, you could intend for the entire ummah. I make my, day, my daily dhikr, intend that the reward goes to the entire ummah of the Prophet them. You could do that. You were raising your hand? Sure. If someone who's not Muslim is different. Because uh, if someone who's not Muslim and they passed away, then we relegate their situation to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If they're alive and they're not Muslim, they can't take the reward. But we could make intention that it's uh, maybe some sort of guidance for them or some sort of, you know, sort of guidance for them. So uh, that would be the way to look at it. Even that's how you interpret it. Like if you say, for example, you say someone's relative is not alive and they say for them, you know, may Allah forgive them. The way that we would understand that is what that saying is, may Allah forgive them by guiding them. That's how we would understand it, you know. Uh, you had a follow-up. 
by guiding them. You know, like that would be Allah forgiving them, as if Allah guides them. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Not trying to cause problems. <laughs> I've heard things said in certain places. This was one of the issues that really upset me, actually. I've said it before here, that this is one of the issues that really, really upset me. It took me some time to get over. Uh, because when we were here in San Diego, as like young people, we were told that you absolutely cannot recite the Qur'an for people who have passed away and like, you know. So we took that seriously. And family members might pass away or community members might pass away and like we would make drama about it, you know. You just end up with arguments and people and like bad time to have arguments with them, you know, when someone has passed away. Um, and then at some point while we were studying, I realized that I can read Arabic. <laughs> And I have a general understanding of the sources of the religion And I don't need to default to whatever I heard And actually it would be irresponsible to default to whatever I heard um, And rather I should check sources myself And this was actually the first question that I feel like I really looked at myself And, um, and I was really dismayed You know, that, uh, that the, at least the you have some difference of opinion in the early Maliki school, for example. But the kind of like come to position of the four madhabs is that you can read Quran for people who have passed away and intend the reward for them. And it's not distinguished by family members, not family members, anything else. Um, so that was, you know, kind of shocking to me and quite upsetting because I didn't understand. What I couldn't understand was like, why are we making these things into issues? And they don't need to be. Like, this has, it's been done settled. This is not like some new issue, you know. Uh, the madhabs have been there for over a thousand years. The positions have been there for over a thousand years. Even if someone was to take it as far as to say like, I don't think that we should do this, they should at least acknowledge that Another opinion exists and that it's the majority position, at least, you know. Anyways, I, I feel like it's a, a level of either the person just doesn't know or there's a kind of uh, lack of academic integrity. And I would prefer that it's the former rather than the latter because the former would be less problematic than the latter. But, you know, I don't know what to say other than that. So... Allah Alam. Allah Yes, Tom. Can you just explain a little bit more what it means to intend the reward to go to somebody? So, just out of curiosity, so like, yeah. if you're doing a good deed, right, it's Quran or whatever, and you intend the reward to go to somebody, does that mean you don't get that reward? No, you get it. Like the idea of when you encourage someone to good and you get the reward for it and they get the reward for it, it doesn't, you, your reward is the same 
and they get the reward for it. So why would people not do this more? That's an excellent question. Yeah. So the sim the, just real quick, the simplest way to do that would just to be have a clear intention in your heart before you do it. I'm going to read Surah Al-Fatiha right now. I'm intending that I get reward for it and everyone else gets the reward for it. And then you do it. It's that simple. Some scholars in the Shafi'i school, they said that, if they were specifically in the context of Qur'an, probably applied to other things too. I'm not a Shafi'i, but I'm just, and it's been a lot of years. But um, it would say something like, the person can make dua at the end. Oh Allah, this thing that I did, please give the reward of this thing to so-and-so. And they make that dua, and that's it. So you could do that too. Your follow up, your second question. Very quick follow up question like, this might be a weird Daisy thing, but like, if, let's say you had like a parent who passed away.